I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is our Globalist in Plain Sight show every Sunday. And sometimes we talk about uh, COVID, the WHO, what's going on in Israel. But today we're going to take it. We're going to pivot. We're going to talk about mass shootings. We're going to talk about the violence that is going on in the Middle East. And we're going to talk about drugs. Drugs that um, mass shooters take or are prescribed, illegal substances that are trafficked uh, from Southern Europe through Turkey across the Arabian Peninsula and consumed by millions. The drug that, that, that I'm referring to uh, across the Arabian Peninsula is a drug called Captagon. It's used by terrorists. It's known to be used by terrorists. It was outlawed. Nobody's supposed to be manufacturing it, but it's very easy to manufacture. It's an amphetamine, it's a synthetic amphetamine stimulant. And we want to talk about what's happening in terms of psychotropic drugs here in the United States. The United States is the most pharmaceutically addicted country in the world. We have more people prescribed to pharmaceuticals than any other country. We are the consumers. So we need to listen to what's going on and see and talk about the connection between mass shootings and drugs. We have had an, too many mass shootings here in the United States. On the far left, those people want to get a, take away guns. On the, on the right, people want to talk about mental illness. In between, there's a layer of truth. And what people don't understand is we need to ask about what is going on with mass shooters? Not necessarily if they're racist, if they're crazy. We have to go. We have to dive deep and say, are they on any prescriptions that can cause an episodic incident that results in mass shootings? Today is Sunday, October 29th. On the top of the news over Halloween weekend here in the United States, we have a number of cities that there are mass shootings of a, a Halloween weekend. Last week, we had mass shooting up in Maine and Robert Card has killed 18 people at two locations and then killed himself. 
And immediately we saw politicians from the U.S. congressman who represents Lewiston, Maine, to Senator Susan Collins, all of a sudden talk about assault weapon bans. And I think that there needs to be a broader conversation and people need to talk about the prescriptions or illegal drugs that can cause, and the FDA and everybody knows this, can cause violence, anger, murder, and suicides. And today we are honored to have Andrew Tebow, who's the director of Speed Demons. He actually tried to get documentation from the FDA about psychotropic drugs. And when I say psychotropic drugs, those are antidepressants, anti-anxiety uh, drugs that have been legalized here in the United States. And he spent a lot of time trying to get these documents from the FDA. He successfully received them after filing a pro se FOIA. Andrew's not a lawyer. And the records he has are from 2004 to 2014. And what he found was conclusive about the side effects that are not being communicated to people who are prescribed these drugs by doctors. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Christine. So let's let's go back before we get to what you found with the FDA. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're a father who is concerned about your son, and you decided to take a deep dive. Give us a, a snapshot of your personal story of how you got into this arena before we get to the FDA and what you found. Yeah, so um, there are a lot of forces at play um, that parents don't always understand what's happening behind the scenes. There's a lot of monetary incentives um, directed at your local school that tend to push the drugs on parents. Um, there's a federal program called the 504 program. You get a kid on an IEP, an individual education plan, and then uh, you know the federal money starts flowing into the schools. A good book to read on this is called The ADHD Explosion written by um, a Berkeley psychologist, Dr. Stephen Henshaw, and his uh, public health economist colleague, Dr. Richard Scheffler. And it really traces the skyrocketing uh, diagnoses of ADHD back to no child left behind. So I found myself in a position where uh, it was being recommended to me by people who didn't have an MD after their name that, that I should maybe put my, um, child on ADHD medication. What year was this, Andrew, so we can go back in time and just keep the, the evolution chrono in chronological order? Yeah, this was a little over a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm dating myself a little bit here, Christine, but when I was growing up, you know, they showed us videos in sociology and science class of people who'd taken amphetamine uh, or PCP, Angel Dust, and did crazy things. And we were taught these were bad drugs. Um, and it turns out in my research, um, I discovered that, lo and behold, in 1973, this whole class of drugs, amphetamines, was banned by the FDA. But they've since been rehabilitated uh, 
but trusting my instincts and thinking speed probably isn't something I need to give my child. I wanted to do a deeper dive, as you said. So uh, being a data person, I went straight to the data. Uh, the FDA has what's called the Adverse Event Reporting System, or FAERS, also known as MedWatch. And they provide the files in essentially a machine-readable format. So I normalized those into a database and started doing uh, data mining. And what I found was shocking, Christine. Firstly, with respect um, uniquely to the uh, stimulant medications. So this would be the amphetamine-based drugs like Adderall and Vyvanse and Mideas, um, but also the methylphenidate, right? So like the Ritalins, the Concertas, the Focalins. There were 300 children that had been, um, that had died on medication. So I found that to be shocking. That was my first discovery. For a second, is that during the clinical trials or is that after they had rolled it out and legalized it? Yeah, that's, that's afterward and what's called a post-marketing surveillance. Um, and so some of these children, Christine, were as young as three years old that had died on the medication, which is shocking to me. Now, in doing further research, I found a testimony from a former HHS, which is the parent agency of the FDA, associate director by the name of Janet Heinrich. Um, in, in U.S. Senate testimony, she said that experts believe the FDA adverse event reporting system includes an estimated 1% to 10% of the actual number of adverse reactions. So with that number in mind, 300 reports of fatalities, I was shocked to know that the real number is somewhere in between 3,000 and 30,000 children dead from stimulants. And, we, and just so our audience knows, we know that even though the VAERS reporting system is overseen by our U.S. government, there was a study done about 10 years ago by some people at Harvard that determined that it didn't work, but it's never been corrected but it's been analyzed, but they, but they haven't spent any of the billions of dollars that they receive in, um, by the U.S. government to fix it. Yeah, and in fact, my, my point is that, you know, Andrew, maybe they don't want to, because if they really did and they really had accurate numbers, then it would represent higher numbers of adverse effects. Yeah, well, the main reason that it's underreported is it's entirely voluntary. Right. So if they had to report every instance, the numbers would be a lot higher. Now, I should note that the process that I used was very similar to an article that was done. You mentioned Harvard by uh, Joseph Glenmon, who's a Harvard psychiatrist, along with uh, Thomas Moore et al. And they uh, was published in PLOS One, and they essentially looked at the same data and found a link between 13, I believe it was, different drugs and violence. But I wasn't there yet, that's putting the cart before the horse. I was simply looking at, hey, are these drugs something that I should be giving to my child? So after finding these fatalities, I thought to myself, okay, this is just stimulants. What about all the other psychotropic drugs that are given to children and adults? And so I expanded my search. And mind you, Christine, there's no single list of all psychotropic drugs. So I had to compile that myself. and I. Uh, ended up with a list of about 400 different drugs, including the uh, brand names and the generic names. And so I started mining the data for that. And what I found was equally shocking. There were just under 1900 fatalities 
These are all pediatric fatalities, mind you, Christine. There are literally tens of thousands of adult fatalities related to these same drugs. In fact, if you Google it, psychostimulants is second only to opiates in terms of overdose deaths in America. Tens of thousands of people are dying from these drugs. That's why they showed us the videos back in the day um, in, in middle school. And that's you know why they were banned in 1973. But what I found was there were 1,900 fatalities. Children, uh, some of them just had had taken, you know, I think the maximum that I'd seen was was over a dozen medications. Uh, you get into what's called polypharmacy. And so that's mind-numbing. You're talking anywhere from 19,000 to 190,000 children in this country alone who've died on psychotropic medications. It's scandalous. And to the skeptics who think, well, no, that can't be. Remember, I'm talking about um, you know, hundreds of different psychotropic drugs, whereas there was a single drug, Vioxx, um, which the FDA's own epidemiologist estimated 135,000 people died from. Right. They had heart attacks and they knew about it ahead of time uh, by the, uh, the pharma and the FDA knew about that risk. They most certainly did. Um, and so as I dug deeper into these fatalities, uh, you know, with respect to the stimulant drugs, if I told you a middle-aged man who was doing methamphetamine or cocaine keeled over of a heart attack, you'd say, well, yeah, you know, that's what they do, those types of drugs, right? There's a, there's a heart risk. Well, many of these kids were just dying of heart failure, cardiac arrest, you know, falling falling over in their desk, you know, their chair at school, uh, falling over on a basketball court. And then as you expand it out, there were things like hepatoxicity, right? Where the liver, which, um, you know, has the enzymes that process these drugs just shuts down, uh, you know, for kids on five, six, seven, eight different drugs, uh, it, that can happen. With the antipsychotics, they have a thing called uh, neuromalignant syndrome and that can kill you dead. What is that? Um, well, it's typically associated with the second generation or what's also known as atypical um, antipsychotics. And it's, it's fatal. There's uh, another class of drugs called mood stabilizers that are associated with something called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And Stevens-Johnson syndrome, when it progresses to, I think it's 30% of your body, it then turns into toxic epidermal necrolysis. And as the name suggests, your skin basically dies and, and uh, peels off. The way you treat those people is in a burn center. They look like a burn patient. It's a horrific death. So all these things were in there, Christine. And um, then I saw... Why would anybody <laughs> manufacture, approve, and distribute and prescribe a drug that could that could ultimately put a person in a burn unit if they had a bad reaction and their skin started falling off. The way I've heard it put, and it's very crass and callous, is it's the cost of doing business. We've, you know, we, we have heard this, <laughs> the risk benefits uh, with COVID, even though we, I mean, there's substantial evidence. I mean, it's, it, you'd have to live under a rock, but a lot of people choose to live under a rock. And I understand that. I don't accept it. Um, but we now know that there was a plethora of evidence 
about myocarditis very early on in 2021, and the documents and the communications under FOIA have proven that people, you know, at the FDA, CDC, NIAID, it went up to the top, even that the, they were going to inform President Biden, Francis Collins at the NIH, Tony Fauci. They all knew about the myocarditis, but they didn't stop it. Yeah, some of the um, fatalities did occur during phase three clinical trials that I found. Um, so as I progressed in my research in terms of the cause of death, which was all contained within the AERS, I saw a particular med return. Keep in mind, these are medical terms that mm -hmm. they're using. And MEDRA is a, is a glossary of, of medical terms. And the side effect that was listed was homicide. And I thought, okay, that's a mistake. And I just dismissed it out of hand because I didn't go looking at the data trying to find this, Christine. It found me. So then I saw it again, murder. And I thought, how can this be? And the third time I saw it, the light bulb went off and I thought, oh my goodness. So then I looked at the AERS and found that there was between 2004 and 2014, as you pointed out, I found that there were 716 AERS reports of homicide as a side effect of psychotropic medications. So that was back in October of 2014. I made a Freedom of Information Act request to the FDA. And they dragged their feet, they kicked the can, and um, it was in August of 2015 that I filed a federal lawsuit. And it's not something that I took lightly. Uh, I prayed about it. I thought, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and, and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Here I'd found this information. I knew the significance of it, but I thought if I don't do this, nobody's going to. And I did talk to attorneys. Believe me, going and filing a federal lawsuit pro se was not high on my list of things to do. But a couple of attorneys that, that I respected and talked to were looking for six-figure retainer fees. And that's just not something that I um, was in a position to provide. So it turns out, Christine, if you've got 500 bucks, 400 to file the lawsuit and 50 to serve the attorney general and 50 to serve the U.S. attorney in your local jurisdiction, you got yourself a federal lawsuit. Um, so that was an interesting uh, episode in my life. It lasted two years from October, of, excuse me, August of 2015 through until finally, I believe it was July of 2017. So it was a nearly a two year lawsuit. Well, let's let's find out because those are always fun when people when people find themselves in that position. What did you learn taking taking those guys on pro se? I mean, how much did they put you through hell legally? Yeah. So, uh, great question. For me, mind you, I didn't go looking for any of this, and what I found was really shocking, and it, it challenged all of my preconceived notions about our institutions. You know, when I first of all, it turns out when you sue the federal government, the Department of Justice becomes this kind of sleazebag, my cousin Vinny defense attorney. And it doesn't matter what the federal government did, they will lie, cheat, and steal. Um, and I saw them, you know, lie in pleadings. And they knew they were lying. 
so that was a shock to see that the Department of Justice would defend uh, unconscionable actions on the part of branches of our federal government in this case. And all you wanted was the documents, right? That's right. That's right. I didn't want anything that, that um, you know, was a secret. These were, they'd already given the metadata out in the form of ASCII 2 and XML files, which I had normalized into a database. I just wanted the case narratives, right? It turns out that there are case narratives where you can put more clues together. And that's what they were really closely guarding. They didn't want people to know that there was a relationship between these drugs and not only the mass shootings, but notorious murders uh, ripped straight from the headlines. All right, we're going to take a break on this, Andy. And when we come back, let's get into some of the weeds of what you found. Because obviously, when you go up against Goliath and they push back and they don't want you to have anything, you know that there's something there. Just like in the COVID, COVID arena, when people tried to get the documents from the FDA and Pfizer, they first said, no, it's going to be 55 years, then they're going to keep it for 75 years. I mean, for anybody who's in my line of work, we all knew immediately, oh, <clears throat> there's something there. And as it's been proven with the release of the documents, there definitely is there. And there's, there's more there because a lot of the documents have been blacked out. We're going to take a break and come back and find out later on what you found. It's going to be a good day. Monday, we do have a little bit left available here. Check us out, familyfarmbeefbox.com. Thanks. Have a good day. All right. So we're with Andrew Tebow, and the man who has taken on the FDA and found something that other people haven't found, which is that the FDA has known um, behind the scenes with pharma about the adverse effects, not just with headaches, but for homicides, anger, increased anger, violence, murders, uh, and they're related to and known by the pharma industry and the FDA and approved by the FDA to be distributed, prescribed, and digested um, by people all over the world, especially here in the United States. And it's going to increase because we will have uh, quote unquote, mental health clinics now in school coming out of this, this COVID experience and they're targeting the kids. So Andrew, this is a real shout out to the parents. They need to know uh, what you found so that if in fact, the, if depending upon the school district, if they want to push these drugs on children, Things could happen. Personalities could change. Anger issues, snapping at people. God knows what else. What did you find when you got these documents? That you, you knew something was there. Then you finally got them around two, 2017. And put it into a nutshell in layman's terms so parents understand how scary this really is. Yeah, so, so what I found was... Um 
like I mentioned, the 716 cases, um, and these were homicides. All of the various classes of psychotropic medications were implicated. So your stimulant drugs, your antidepressants, your anxiolytics, your hypnotic sedatives, the antipsychotics, the mood stabilizers, all of them, you know, had cases. And what was really interesting is the government being the government, some of these, um, some of these cases were duplicates because as I mentioned, you might have a child who's on a polypharmacy regimen. So you may receive a report from two different manufacturers. Well, the government being the government and left hand, right hand, they had redacted uh, these duplicate reports differently. And in FOIA, you have nine exemptions and the FDA was claiming exemption six, which is privacy. So they're claiming this was health information. But what I was able to see by the different redactions is that no, they were not redacting this based on privacy. They were redacting it based on uh, the proximity to the event that the child started taking the medication. And in the cases of school shootings, and yes, there were mass and school shootings that were in these files. Uh, they didn't want you to know how many people they killed, so they would redact that. Um, and so I filed a motion with the, the court and it was granted for leave to amend my complaint. Um, I alleged that the government was arbitrarily and capriciously redacting these which can have serious consequences for the federal employees that are found uh, to be responsible for doing that. So that created consequences and the judge uh, granted my request. So that, that changed the, the ball game a little bit. Uh, Christine, this type of litigation is different from any type of litigation that we know because you cannot do discovery right. like in the normal case. And I liken it to playing fish. You, know, you ask the government, do they have an ace of spades? And they say no. Meanwhile, they're holding four aces. So this was my way of getting the information and seeing, in fact, that they were hiding the fact that they were holding cards that they said that they weren't. They were redacting in ways that were not privacy based. And Did so, you, pardon me for a second. Did you ever, when going through that process, when they're making objections and they're fighting you and you're going before the court? I mean, the, at the end, you you won. Okay. But did you ever get a sense that the lawyers for the government actually knew the value of the information and they really wanted to hide it or they just hired guns and robots and say, no, we're not going to give anything to the public? How much substantively do you think that the lawyers on the other side understood the value of what you wanted? I think they understood very well because when I filed my um, motion for leave to amend and it was granted. I filed an amended complaint and attached to my amended complaint were the files that they provided me as exhibits as proof that they had, um, you know, surreptitiously, uh, arbitrarily and capriciously redacted this information that wasn't for privacy. So then I promptly received and Christine, this isn't something you want to receive. I received uh, a letter from the Department of Justice instructing me that I needed to delete the files that, that they had just given me. But they had assured so they, me- they, they, they were admitting that they may, might have made a mistake? Well, it then became the evidence that I used against them. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, it was very ominous to to receive that kind of a, a letter. And um, I, I didn't comply, right? I basically said, look, you have you had uh, provided this and assured me that it was redacted in accordance with the Freedom of Information Act. Um, so ultimately, the government decided not to seek a protection order. Um, and they're kind of paraphrasing their words. They were afraid of a, uh, a Streisand type effect, right? If they asked the court to then for a take back to cover it up, that it would be the cover up uh, that would be the focus. Right. So long story short, we played a game of chicken and they blinked. I got all but 23 files, either lesser redacted or unredacted. So those files, Christine, are available right now for interview any of your viewers to, um, to research themselves at a site called murdermeds.com. So you can look up any medication that uh, your child may be prescribed and see if there is any link to homicides. Mind you, Christine, these are just homicides. I wasn't looking like uh, Glenn Mullen and more at all. Uh, Kurt Ferberg was the other uh, Wake Forest, I think, doctor who had looked at the, the same files. I wasn't looking at aggression. I wasn't looking at hostility. I wasn't looking at... Sort you were of just the, trying to figure out if, you, if your child was on sure. his drugs. So, well, I just, I, once I zeroed in on the homicides, that's all I was looking at. So understand there are um, many, many, many more uh, reports of aggression and hostility. So I think that the biggest finding from the lawsuit, besides the files themselves, which your viewers can now look at for themselves, is uh, two things. One is the FDA and what's called a Vaughn Index. So because there's no discovery, uh, to substitute for discovery, the defendant, in this case, the FDA, has to vouch for uh, the fact that these have been properly redacted or withheld in accordance with FOIA. And so they have to submit a sworn declaration and what's called a Vaughn index right. um, and go down file by file and explain um, if there was a redaction taken, what exemption was taken and why. And incredibly, in sworn pleadings from Nancy Sager, who is the director of the Division of Information Disclosure Policy for the FDA, she admitted that some of the cases uh, that I had requested, the responsive adverse event reports involve school shootings. So this isn't a conspiracy theory, Christine. The government themselves in sworn pleadings admitted that some of the cases did in fact involve school shootings. And that was their uh, justification for taking additional redactions than they would normally. That document, so, what was the date of that document, Andrew? Um, that would have been in 2017. So that so so the government knows, and the government wants to focus on on the left. The government wants to focus on taking away everybody's guns, uh, and then uh, a lot of conservatives who and, and everybody's ignorant about this. Okay, because the government, but the government knows. So it's a political game. You have a mass shooting here in the United States. One side wants to take away the guns. The other side wants to set up more mental health. You know, if you listen to the U.S. government, we're all crazy coming out of COVID. Everybody's on prescriptions. Um, and the kids are, 
I mean, it was the government that shut down the schools. We've known for over a hundred years, nature versus nurture, social action, social interaction helps the development of children. That That is child development psychology. And yet it was the government who shut down the schools and now they want to drug the kids and they want to expand it and take away parental rights. So when you take a look at that landscape, Andrew, What's the best advice that you can give to parents? Because now you know that these drugs have the side effects. The parents may not know it. They may not have the, their, they may have their rights taken away. The school boards may be overbearing. The local departments of health may be lying to their communities. And how do you protect kids with a situation like this? It's very difficult. It's almost like the parents have a gun to their head. It's either drug the kids or lose custody, you know, and they go into the foster system. Um, but that, that, that's, that reminds me, it, sound, it sounds like, you know, the parents being pushed for the trans situation or they're going to end up with a dead kid, which is quite frankly, I, I, I you know, I, I think the shrinks are in on that game with the trans. I think they're making money off this. And I think the doctors are making money off of it. And I think that there's a social media um, influence for some of these kids on TikTok and other places, you know, but no one's having the adult conversation and saying, well, let's take a look at this because do you really want to put your child on a lifetime of medicine going the trans route? Do you want to put your child into the possibility of having an episodic episode that, that, results in murder or suicide because they're on these anti-anxiety, antidepressive drugs. I mean, you've been in this, you've got the documentation. What do you, what do you recommend? I know it's difficult, but what do you recommend? How, do the parents have to take a look at the inserts? Absolutely. Do they have to watch the behavior of the children after they get on these drugs, if they so choose? Or if the child is pushed to have the drugs, I know friends of mine, you know, within the last 10 years have come to me and said, you know, the school's telling me I need to put my kid on Ritalin. And I put them in touch with people that understand the side effects of Ritalin. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I'm glad you brought up the the uh, the inserts, because this isn't theory anymore. Um, since this lawsuit, there are. Uh, five different stimulant drugs, Adzenis, Astaris, Focalin, Mideus, and Vivance that are commonly prescribed to children and adolescents with ADHD. And how? And people have to understand that ADHD was not based on science. It was based on um, behavioral observation to get it into the DMS-3. And the guys who were part of that committee years ago when they did that, they basically said this was based upon behavior. It wasn't based observation. It wasn't based upon any science whatsoever. They have ADHD, you know, as a as a disorder diagnosed, diagnostic. I mean, it, the, the whole, you know, I, I guess what, what I've been thinking about is the upside of coming out of COVID has ripped the veil uh, of corruption and the coziness between pharma and the US government for legalizing something that hurts people. I call it corruption. I don't think that there's informed consent 
for these drugs if the government is hiding the adverse effects, if they're not recognizing that some of these drugs, maybe they work for some people, I don't know. But if they cause harm in people, that should be part of the narrative. And the doctors should know about it. And if the doctors don't know about it and they're prescribing it, they're complicit in the cover-up unknowingly, but still, if they're not asking the questions, that makes them willfully complicit. Yeah, well, who do you think is um, funding the research? Who's funding the uh, universities? Uh, who's taking the doctors to lunch? I mean, it's it's big pharma. Um, still on the issue of the labels, you know, there are um, another five drugs, a plensin, effexor, wellbutrin, savella, and paxil antidepressants, which have a homicidal ideation on the label. So it's, it's something, it's out in the open now, you know, your, your, um, your show is called in plain sight. It's in plain sight. You just have to know what you're looking for. And, um, it is buried pretty far down in some of the, um, uh, some of the inserts, but it's there, homicidal ideation. And why is this? Two reasons, Christine, because of the adverse event reporting system. You know, this is an emerging signal of harm in the post-marketing surveillance, number one. It's happening. And number two, the drug companies don't want to be sued for failure to warn. So this way they can put it on the label and say, well, hey, we warned you. That's right. That's right. So there are, uh, you know, you mentioned mass shootings at the outset. There are a number of mass shootings now that we know documented uh, that the perpetrators were on commonly prescribed medications for ADHD, for depression, uh, and for anxiety. And it's more often the case if they do the correct um, testing fits post, uh, posthumously. Um, either an HPLC or an LCMS um, is going to be the test. In the case of the, the Covenant shooter in Nashville, they did what's called an ELISA, which is really no better than an employment screening. You're testing for drugs of abuse rather than therapeutic use. Mm -hmm. If you look at the tests uh, that were done, say, on the Vegas shooter, Stephen Paddock, on the Sutherland Springs shooter, um, Devin Patrick Kelly, or on Connor Betts, the Dayton shooter, you find that they have therapeutic levels of uh, psychiatric medications in their system. And in fact, it, it explains a lot. Um, and, you know, it's interesting at the beginning of the show, you were, you were mentioning Captagon. Um, and I, I think you're right. There is an intersection between the horrors that we've witnessed recently um, transpire in Israel and the horrors that you know the some of our our kids and in, in high schools are facing well we know we, I, I guess if we sit back and just observe you know what is reality and um when people commit these heinous crimes when people commit mass shootings uh like the like um robert clark did in maine i mean you, i don't know why anybody's not asking what so why did this guy go off his rocker and you know he he People witnessed the fact that, you know, he was having some mental issues to, over the summer. We know in war zones, for those of us that have been in them, we know the Camp de is, is, is it's, it's called the poor man's cocaine in that part of the world. It's, it's a dollar or two 
for a pill. If you sell it here in the United States, it's, you know, it, it can be up to, you know, $20 a pill. But we know it's a stimulant. We know that it's not just, it's not concentrated just with terrorists. It's a stimulant for euphoria. Um, and, and they found it in the pockets of some of these dead Hamas bodies that were left behind in Israel after the attack on October 7th. And that really, you know, I've known about this for years because I've, I've been in the business for a long period of time and spent a lot of time overseas. And it is used by terrorist groups and it, it gets people, you know, riled up. And I've always said that when you get to the atrocities, I'm not talking about the rockets, and, and but people who go in and behead, you don't do that same. Uh, Rwanda, 1994, people were walking around dressed in banana leaves, you know, on hooch or whatever they were on, you know, with machetes and killing their neighbors and family members who came from a different tribe. When you talk about what goes on, you know, even going back to the Ottoman Empire, when heads would be uh, behead beheadings would happen and they put the heads on spikes. I mean, that's, that's barbaric behavior and it's, and, but we're seeing barbaric behavior in the 21st century and we're seeing a level of violence and we're seeing drugs in the, in, in the, you know, in the center of this. Now, Andrew, you and I first met face to face uh, over the summer down in Tennessee and Nashville. We were down there to talk to some of the um, members of the legislation at the state level you know, to educate them about, about these drugs is a factor of investigative to figure out what kind of policy should be created by some of these lawmakers. And many of them are clueless about it. What do you foresee, or is it, is it, is it just too big of a hill to climb? What do you foresee in terms of educating these people? Because I, I think this, I really, I really am somebody who thinks that we need to have a larger conversation, a deeper conversation and get it out there about, you know, drugs can make people crazy. It's, it's, it's not just the illegals like Captagon, which has been outlawed, recognized, but we know that it's manufactured in Southeast Europe. We know it's trafficked through Turkey. We know the market is for the Arabian Peninsula. And we know some people go crazy on the Arabian Peninsula and commit atrocities. So, we know what happened. We know that there's a level of violence in schools and, you know, every sheriff, law enforcement official I talk to, not, not always the school board members will admit this, but the law enforcement knows about the uptake and violence in middle schools and high schools across the country. How do we get people's attention? Yeah, um, well, you've made a lot of really, I think, on-target observations. Um, there are a lot of parallels between what's happening in the Middle East. Um, you know, I know from my own research that the um, authorities in France uh, found in the uh, the residents or the uh, temporary residents that the Bataclan um, and the uh, Saint-Denis terrorists, that they found Captagon there. I know the uh, the the shooter in Sousse, Tunisia, right. who was ISIS. He was on Captagon, mm -hmm. as you've mentioned. Um, you know the Israelis have found Captagon. Um, you know, in a, in in and around the person uh, in their pockets. Guys. In their pockets. Yeah, and so that that harkens back. You know, the first school shooting in America, 1966, the Texas clock 
tower, they found amphetamine sulfate capsules on Charles Whitman's body when he was killed. So there's a long history of these drugs being um, associated with these, these heinous acts. So I think pharma's done a really good job of marketing and trying to um, rehabilitate the image of these drugs, which were banned, like outright banned in this country in 1973. But we just need to keep chipping away, Christine, uh, what you're doing today and having me on the show. Um, I made a documentary called Speed Demons, Killing Oh, Fred. let's talk about that because it's a good documentary. Give, give the layout for that because that was about a shooting uh, in Florida State University. Do I have that university name right? Yeah, that was at Florida State University. And, you know, there's some similarities between uh, Robert Card and Myron May. Myron May was a 31-year-old honors graduate from FSU. He got his JD uh, from Texas Tech Law School. He became... Uh, first, a, a defense attorney, a public defender in Doña Ana County, New Mexico, and then a prosecutor. And from there, he started taking the drug Vyvanse. And that commenced his spiral downward. You know, the labeled side effects for that drug are psychosis with hallucinations and mania. And he ended up turning into a school shooter. Uh, I recommend people watch that. There's two other cases that are profiled. Um, this isn't a one-off. That's why there's a homicidal ideation on the label of that drug now. And to put it into perspective, uh, the FDA themselves, a medical doctor and epidemiologist by the name of Dr. Andrew Mossholder, who works for the FDA, did a meta-analysis back in 2006 and he reported an incidence in children who had taken um, either the amphetamines or the methylphenidate versions of, of psychostimulants available on the market treating ADHD. And what he found was that the instance of psychosis and mania, including with hallucinations, was between two to five per 100 person years. Repeat that, again, repeat that again, Andrew. That's an important statistic. The, the prevalence is between two to five per 100 person years. And he testified to the Pediatric Advisory Committee that anything over 1% cannot be considered rare, infrequent, arguably, but not rare. So we see the, the Ma slick Madison Avenue slogans like they must be off their meds. So we know that's not true. They're not off their meds. The second thing we see as, you know, a misnomer out there is that they had a history of psychiatric illness. Well, kids, really? And so what that study showed, Mossholder study showed that these kids had no risk factors. They had, they were kids. They had no history of mental illness and they became psychotic. You know, imagining that spiders were crawling all over them or hearing voices like Robert Card was. Right. So these are these are misnomers. They're um, circulated by big pharma. They're parroted by the pharma sponsored mainstream media. And so that's what we get in our heads. And you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head that the two choices, the false choices that we're given is either we have to take away everyone's guns because we know that two to five percent will become psychotic. And when you do the math, Christine, if six million people are on stimulant medications, that means 300,000 people per year are going to become psychotic or manic right. and, and potentially hallucinate on this medication. So with it's a gun, with a gun in their hand. It's exactly. So in that sense, 
the authorities are absolutely aware that this will happen. Statistically, it's going to happen. And so the answer, I think, is um, just like you cannot get behind the wheel. You can drink alcohol, but you can't get behind the wheel of a car when you're under the influence of alcohol. Otherwise, you're arrested. And I think we need to get to the point in this country where, A, when these uh, mass shootings occur, whether the, the individual dies or survives, we need to do a toxicology just like we would do in an automobile accident. And it needs to be a full toxicology, not something that's you know equivalent to a, uh, an employment screening, right? Let's find out what they're on. Let's document that. Let's just like you don't have any expectation of privacy when you blow into the breathalyzer how much alcohol was in your system. There should be no medical privacy. If you got behind the wheel and the label says you shouldn't operate heavy machinery and you did that, well, guess what? That's That shouldn't be private information. It should be made public. Same thing with the firearms. If someone is, is you know under the influence of this medication while they're operating a firearm, that should be um, you know an, an aggravating factor potentially and or well there, there, there are possible danger to themselves or anybody around them I mean it, it's it's a conversation that some people don't want to have it's but it's a conversation that is necessary it, it's almost imperative now because we have so many people on these on these medications and they they do not have informed consent and they might be quite frankly brain dead and not re even read the insert because they believe in the medical divinity of the white coat. So if the doctor says this is what you need, if the nurse says this is what you need at the school, if the parents don't have a choice, I mean, that, that is, that is, that makes, it's like the internet. Once it walks through your door, you can't get it out of your house. Well, if you have this, this type of model where the parents don't have a say, but they read the inserts, but they can't say no because the school board says, no, you can't because pharma is, is throwing money at this to market and target kids. I mean, we've lost, we, we've lost all control of protecting one another. Yeah, well, it's you know your your introduction to the show is very ominous, but I think it's um, very appropriate, very apropos because there is a tightening of the noose that's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, parents' rights are being eroded, and like I said, there's a false choice. Either you know you hear this, protect the kids, so we have to take everyone's guns away. Um, well, they don't, the farmer doesn't want it to come down to take the drugs out. No, of course not. In fact, the irony is on the flip side, they're, they're saying we need more mental health, which in this country is synonymous with psychopharmacology, whereas that's the root of the problem. And so I think the ultimate, um, you know, taking away of rights is the taking away of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the victims of the mass shootings um, have to be taken into account. Their rights were taken away. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to take everyone's right to own a firearm away. Just to let you know, I don't have a horse in this race. I've never purchased a firearm. I've never even so much as discharged a firearm. But if you told me I couldn't own one, I probably wouldn't be too happy, right? But the reality is people who elect to go on these medications, if you're so depressed that you need an antidepressant, 
if you're psychotic enough to you, to where you need an antipsychotic, then I would argue you shouldn't own a gun. You should be separated from your firearm, right? And there are some that would claim, oh, that stigmatizes mental illness. No, it doesn't. Because a mentally ill person, it's true, is more likely to be a victim of violent crime than a perpetrator thereof. However, we're not stigmatizing the mental illness. We're looking at the drug from a factual point of view and saying, look, even the label says it causes homicidal ideation. So if you elect, it's a choice. If you elect to go on those drugs that are labeled for suicide, black lock box warning for suicide, or a homicidal ideation warning, you shouldn't be able to own those guns as long as you're having that issue. Um, so I think that's the solution, Christine. It's not to take everyone's firearms away. No, it's not. And, and, and that came up uh, in the aftermath of actually before they found Robert Clark's body. Susan Collins and the congressman um, from that area talked about the assault bans immediately in terms of a piece of legislation. But Susan Collins did say before they found Robert Clark's body that then they have this law. It's called a yellow law. It means that, you know, if there's somebody in the community who's off their rocker, then people need to know that own a gun. There is an, a mechanism in the state of Maine that you can actually take it away from them. And she even admitted that in this particular instance with Robert Clark, there was enough information out there to at least have a conversation with them. Uh, well, see, I think that's where uh, citizens need to really ask themselves what is really going on. Because mm -hmm. if you take, for instance, the Sutherland Springs shooter, Devin Patrick Kelly, the Air Force was forced to pay $144.5 million in a settlement to the families of the victims because they did not report Devin Patrick Kelly's history to authorities, civil authorities, so that he could be denied the firearm. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in Parkland, the FBI was warned not once, but twice about Nicholas Cruz. And they blew it off. And they paid $175 million in a settlement to the Parkland families. We know, Christine, that Robert Card had this issue back in July. So this is deja vu all over again, right? Where the federal authorities are failing to do their job and we should hold them accountable. And by the way, Christine, this wasn't the FBI's money to give away. This wasn't the U.S. Air Force's money to give away. That was your money, Christine. That was my money. That was the money that the viewers had paid for taxes. But they say, oops. So was anybody disciplined? Did anybody lose their job? Did they make any institutional changes and say, we have to change this and report? Because this is happening time and time again. I mean, you look at the first mass shooting in America, Howard Unruh in 1949 in Camden, New Jersey. He was in the army. We talked about Charles Whitman. He mm -hmm. came from you look at the second Fort Hood shooter, specialist Ivan Lopez Lopez. That case is very elucidating. The, the army put out a, a voluminous report about that incident. And it turned out that he was on a regimen of polypharmacy. He was on the antidepressants, Wellbutrin and Effexor, and the hypnotic sedatives, uh, Lunesta and Ambien. We call and that a cocktail. He was a on, cocktail. It's a cocktail. It's a cocktail. And in fact, um, it's the, 
the the two most lethal cocktails I found from the FBI uh, the FDA files uh, that I obtained through the lawsuit were an antidepressant with an anxiolytic, which would be like a Xanax or a Valium or a Klonopin, or a antidepressant with a hypnotic sedative. So like the Lunestas and the Ambience of the world. Um, so the one drug is labeled for you know, causing one to ruminate about harming themselves or others. And the other one is known to have a disinhibiting property. Right. You know, you know what I think would be a really good um, investigation is taking a look at the kids who want to be trans, and how many of them are on any of these drugs. Well, you know, I think there's a reason that we're um, in the case of um, Audrey Hale in Tennessee. I think there's a reason that they're withholding information on that. I think there's uh, some there there. There's there's fire. And there, may be, there may be more there there and parents because uh, I, I think the question parents have to ask is if your kid is going through this, this trans contagion and if the child is in therapy, is the shrink, social worker, school nurse, whoever these people are, um, pushing any of these anti-anxiety or antidepressant drugs on those kids? And is that contributing to the fact that they wanna um, make decisions that they um, mutilate their bodies? Cause that's not normal either. I mean, we, you know, in my generation, we were all against the, you know, uh, female genital mutilation, you know, across Africa that was part of accepted in, in tribes. It's become outlaw in many of those countries. But, you know, I just the other day, I, I learned that Gambia, who had outlawed it, is now trying to decriminalize it. And I'm thinking to myself, we're, we're, we're going backwards, folks. We are absolutely going backwards. And there's something wrong with that. Andrew, we're running out of time. We're going to have you back. So we're going to continue this conversation because, folks, we're, we're going to talk about drugs, prescriptions in terms of these larger geopolitical issues because people make money off of drugs, whether they're drug traffickers or whether they're pharmaceuticals. And if they're not giving, if pharmaceuticals and these government agencies are not giving informed consent, we have a problem in society because we're putting people at risk, people who are taking the drugs and people who are around the people taking the drugs. Andrew, you've got the last word. We've got about a minute left. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for having me on the show. I think it's an important discussion. Uh, parents need to educate themselves. One way you can start to educate yourself is to watch Speed Demons Killing for Attention. It's available on uh, many streaming platforms, and it's um, it's eye-opening, the information that I was able to obtain, both from the FDA, but also from other public records. Absolutely. It was a good, it, and it's a good documentary, and it's informative. That's what people need to understand. And it is posted with this um, interview on our site. Andrew Tebow, thank you very much. We will have you back. I'm really honored to have you today. Thank you, Christine.